This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, as airline travel surges back to pre-pandemic levels, TSA is facing a shortage of agents. We're talking with a TSA leader about recruiting and the agency's new screening technologies. And emails obtained by the news outlet Insider give new insight into how the Defense Department gathered intel on the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, TSA, a component of the Department of Homeland Security, has been screening passengers for over 20 years. Now the agency is modernizing their screening technology and expanding capacity. Darby LaJoy is the Executive Assistant Administrator for Security Operations. Darby, welcome. Thanks, Mimi. Let's talk first about the new checkpoint technologies you're rolling out. The first is credential authentication technology at the beginning of the checkpoint. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks for that question, Mimi. That's really, you know, for us, this is the most critical part in the entire screening process. I think it doesn't get nearly the attention it, it deserves, right? A lot of people focus on, you know, when they're walking through the big checkpoints, through the big, you know, technology we have out there and putting their bags through the x-ray machines. But at the CAT machine, that's the very first part in the screening process where we're doing a couple of key things. The first is we are validating the identity individual. It's important to us to make sure that we, that we understand, in fact, that you are who you say you are. And when we first started this nearly 20 years ago, we were using lights and magnifying glasses to do this, right? So this is a, a sea change in terms of technology. And so our officers um, have a direct connection to our secure flight system, which understands you know, exactly on the pre-screening process. And so the officer now on a screen understands that the identity verification documents that they're checking are in fact legitimate and they have a real-time connection to our secure flight system so they can in real-time understand exactly the appropriate level of screening and where to you know, direct the passengers into our screening lanes. And, and eventually, uh, you'll just need to give your, um, your driver's license. You will not have to scan your boarding pass as well. Absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, some really exciting things we're doing is we've announced um, our partnership with Apple and the states of, of, with the states of Maryland and Arizona where um, passengers can embed their driver's license in their Apple wallet. And so soon, not only we, you, know, you can self-serve um, at the checkpoint and not even have to show us your driver's license. Now, there will also be facial recognition that you'll be using. Absolutely. So the next generation of, of CAT machines is really CAT2. And really what it does is it, it utilizes a high-resolution camera and it's taking a, a live capture of your image and is comparing it to the digital image embedded in either your driver's license, which we hope is real ID compliant, your passport, or your, your mobile device. But when you talk about facial recognition, you need to worry about uh, privacy. So what concerns are there around that? Well, absolutely. That's why for us it's very important that we have a very rigorous testing process so we can sort of work out some of the error rates we see in this technology. And all of this is certainly, you know, every passenger who wants to avail themselves of this technology, they self-select in the process. So they have the option to not even go through it if they're uncomfortable with it. Everything is an opt-in process. So the other new technology is a new and better way to um, to look at the content of bags. Yeah. Tell us about that. 
It's very similar to what we have in hospitals. It's our, our CT technology, our computed tomography. So just as you go to a hospital, um, if the x-rays don't tell the doctor enough, you get referred to a CT machine. That's exactly what we're putting in place at our checkpoints. And so, you know, the officers, you know, today, if, if there's something they have to check in your bag, they pull a lot of things out, they do a the bag check that we're all become familiar with. Well, the CT technology allows the officer on the screen itself to kind of rotate, spin it. They can get a 360 view of the image and also produce a 3D rendering. So it is a, a fundamentally different way they're viewing these images. And we are confident this represents the very best technology to help mitigate some of the threats we're worried about. So, I, and I know that security is the utmost um, concern, but you know, as a passenger, we're also yeah. worried about long wait times. Is this gonna help? Is this gonna move things along faster or is it gonna slow things down? It's, well, the, the key here is, you know, once we deploy these things, you know, the CT uh, technology sets the stage for us to be able to allow passengers to, to keep more things in their bag, right? So really we're at, we're at that point now where as we continue to deploy these things, passengers can keep their, their 311 liquids in their bags, they can keep their electronics in their bags, and that reduces the amount of manual processing that goes on at our checkpoints and speeds the overall process up. So tell me about timeline for rolling these out and how many air, airports around the country are going to be using these technologies. Well, eventually all of our airports will have them. You know, it's not just the largest airports. You know, part of our strategy is understanding that somebody can enter the system at any airport. Um, we've got these in use today at big airports, small airports, and everything in between. So currently we have a little around, around 500 of these, of these machines deployed. Eventually we'll have 2,500 deployed at over 440 airports. And the credentialing technology as well. Will that be rolling out Absolutely. right away? So, so presently we've procured to over 2,000 of these things. They're in use today at over 1,500 different lanes throughout the system. And part of our strategy is to have this embedded at every single lane um, throughout the airport system. I want to ask you about prohibited items that are, are trying to get through um, TSA checkpoints. Um, you've seen a big uptick in firearms lately. What's going on with that? You know, we have. This has been this is something we've been worried about for for a while now. So just just last month alone, we we stopped over 575 firearms from getting on board aircraft. So for us, this very much is a public safety concern. Um, and what's you know a real concern is that these firearms, 80 almost 85 percent of these are loaded. So you can imagine a, a loaded weapon with a chambered round, you know, haphazardly thrown in a bag, you know, that's thrown on a, on a belt at a checkpoint where we've got lots of people. So it really does represent a, a very real public safety concern of ours. And we're doing a number of things to help mitigate that. You know, the first and foremost, we want people to be educated on how to properly travel with a firearm. And so throughout the country, we've got our federal security directors who manage our operations and all around the country. They've worked very well with state and local partners to help get the word out. They go to gun clubs, they work with state licensing agencies, and we passed out media um, to best inform passengers how to properly travel with a firearm. But on the flip side of that, if we think that someone has intentionally brought a firearm to a checkpoint, they face very steep civil penalties and possibly arrest. But typically they'll tell you, look, I just forgot it was in my bag. I had, I had no idea yeah. there was a loaded gun. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's generally the, the response that we get. So one of the things that we've done is we've actually added a number of aggravating penalties. And so if you have a firearm that's loaded, if you have a firearm that's loaded and chambered, if you're a member of a trusted travel population, all those are sort of aggravating steps where those fines get pretty expensive. All right, well, Darby, we're gonna take a quick break right here and then come back and continue. Thanks. We'll continue our conversation with TSA's Darby LaJoy straight ahead on Government Matters. Stay with us.
We're back with Darby LaJoy. He's Executive Assistant Administrator for Security Operations at TSA. Darby, everybody knows the, the liquids rule, 3.4 ounces. Um, is there, will there be a review of that? Is there any chance that that could be relaxed? I think the key is going back to our earlier conversation about computed tomography. As we you know, deploy more and more of this technology to the checkpoints, I think that allows us the opportunity to, to allow those to stay in the bags. But really, it's all predicated on us advancing um, CT and getting more and more, out, more and more of those machines out there to the airports. TSA agents are paid less than their counterparts in, in the federal government. They're not on the GS scale. Why is that? What's going on with that? Yeah, you know, this is something, and I'm glad you asked that question because this has long been uh, a challenge for TSA. As you stated, on average, you know, frontline TSA employees are paid 30% less than their colleagues across government. You know, this is, you know, really sort of, you know, resulted in presently we're short staff about 10%. This is even within the Department of Homeland Security. So we're talking about Customs and Border Patrol agents are, are paid more. Correct. How did that even happen? It goes back to the law that created TSA. You know, ATSA, you know, soon after 9-11, you know, the law that created TSA, you know, put TSA under our own pay system, under our own authorities. I mean, over time, we've just not kept pace with the rest of government. It resulted in you know long-standing 20% attrition. So to us, this is a, a real concern. It is the number one priority for Administrator Pekoski. It's a priority for Secretary Mayorkas, and it's in the the President's 23 budget request includes a request for TSA pay equity. And I think it's important to acknowledge this is not about paying TSA employees any more than the colleagues in government. It's simply paying TSA employees exactly what they'd make. Um, you know, with our colleagues across government. So what are you doing about it and the, the issue with um, being understaffed? How are you going to be recruiting? Yeah, that's been, you know, a focus of ours for, you know, for, for years now, especially since we found ourselves in this pandemic. I think it's been pretty widely covered, some of the disruptions that we're seeing, you know, in, in air travel all around the world. Um, we've not seen that level of disruption at our checkpoints. And that really is because of a lot of hardworking TSA employees. Over a thousand of our officers have volunteered uh, to be part of our national deployment office. We have a thousand officers that, are, that, that volunteer to spend many, many months away from their families to go work at airports that may have more acute challenges with respect to staffing or maybe you know, under you know, more severe capacity constraints. So that's one of the, the, the key things that we've done. And in addition, you know, we have officers that are volunteering to work six days a week. You know, many of the officers who are out there at the nation's airports are working, you know, six days a week um, in, in order to sm avoid, you know, some of the problems we're seeing in other parts of the, of the world. All right. Well, you know what? This sounds like a thankless job, to be honest. It's not like anybody goes up to TSA and thanks them for their hard work. Um, how are you going to recruit? What's, what's the value proposition here? Well, that, that's why I think pay equity is so important for us, because in exit survey after exit survey, we see this in the Federal Employee Employment view, view, Viewpoint Survey. You know, our officers are proud of the mission. Um, they're proud of the work and support they get from our supervisors, but they leave TSA because they have to go make more money someplace else, right? So we want to build on that morale, and hopefully TSA pay equity you know, goes a long way to helping not only our recruitment, but also our retention. Give us an idea of the infrastructure investments that you're going to be seeing at airports um, that are being made through the Department of Transportation um, and the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah, I think that's really, really key in all this. I mean, as we've discussed, you know, there are inherent capacity constraints all throughout the system. We've seen that, you know, just this summer. And so over, 
over five years, $5 billion to go in directly to airports to help improve terminals, to help improve infrastructure that's going to improve the checkpoint. Um, we've got to find ways to make the overall checkpoint and airport experience much more efficient. You know, part of that we think, you know, part of the TSA capital investment plan includes this movement towards open architecture, you know, embedding some of these principles and how we not only develop our procedures, but also develop our procurement strategies. And by opening the tent, if you will, the number of companies that can help find solutions, um, we think that can enable quicker solutions when we find the, our, ourselves in, in the face of a security threat, um, but also allow us more interoperability at the airport level and it makes the overall system much more efficient. The um, TSA also handles security for ground transportation, including the pipelines. Of course, there was that uh, colonial pipeline hack, and you're involved in cybersecurity of that. So can you tell me what you're doing to secure those pipelines? Yeah, that's, and again, it, it, you asked the right question. You know, this has been, you know, following the, the ransomware attack, you know, we, we implemented a number of some of the very first cybersecurity regulations that existed in transportation. Um, and, and just yesterday, we reissued our latest security directive. Um, and it was really, really important for us because it represents a fundamental shift we're making towards more performance-based measures. You know, we, we, we want to get away from the sort of, you know, compliance-based, check-the-box, you know, mentality when it comes to working with our industry partners and focus much more on outcomes. And so this latest revision of the SD is a reflection of a lot of technical work we've done directly with our partners in government to include CISA, DOE, and DOT, but most importantly, technical work we've done directly with the companies that we partner with. Darby, we've got about 30 seconds. I want to ask you about what does the future uh, of travel look like from TSA's perspective? I think this is really, really exciting because, you know, we really are at that point now where we talked a lot about, you know, wa walking at speed, you know, security at speed. As you're walking through the airport, you know, I think we're very close to being able to sort of screen people as they're walking incorporating biometrics, incorporating some of the CAT technology we talked about at the very front of the checkpoint um, with our CT technology, and then sort of underpinning all of that, uh, a secure, flexible infrastructure. We really do think we're pretty close to being able to screen at speed. All right. Well, we'll definitely be seeing that. And thank you so much, Darby, for being on the program. Thank you, Amy. Next, we're learning more about the Pentagon's response as the attack on the Capitol unfolded. Insider's deputy editor joins me to talk about what was discovered in newly obtained emails. We'll be right back. There's still a lot of questions about the response to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, but new emails obtained by Insider show how the Defense Department was gathering information and responding behind the scenes. Deputy Editor David Leventhal joins me. Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mimi. Appreciate you having me. So days after the November 2020 election, Defense Secretary Mark Esper was fired. What was happening during that time inside the Pentagon? From what we know, a lot of chaos, incredible amounts of change and tumult, turbulence that you would expect when in the final few weeks of a presidential administration, you have a department that the top leadership has been uh, shooken up and you have to have a uh, an acting um, <laughs> secretary come in. Uh, there's so many questions. And, and also too, of course, you've got to remember the backdrop to all of this, which was that even though the election had been staged, the election had been seemingly uh, concluded in the sense that Joe Biden was becoming president of the United States, Donald Trump was refusing to concede that, in fact, he had lost the election. 
So take us through the activities at the DOD in the days leading up to the January 6th um, incident. What, was there any preparation going on at, at the Pentagon? So from what we know, including from what we obtained from the 48 pages of records uh, through a uh, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit uh, that we had filed against the Department of Defense, is that there was caution, there was concern about the event that was going to be happening on the National Mall on January 6th that Donald Trump himself was going to be speaking at. But we didn't get any sense that there was overwhelming uh, fear of violence or, or an attack on the U.S. Capitol, for sure. So yes, caution, but, but not uh, overriding existential uh, dread that uh, ultimately January 6th would turn into what it ultimately became. The records that you obtained show that Pentagon officials were getting intel from media reports and Twitter. Is that typical? Well, anytime you have a very live situation, you are going to have government agencies that are pulling in information from just about any source that they can possibly get their hands on. Oftentimes that is media reports from the scene, uh, video that you're going to see uh, on television, reports that you're going to get even on Twitter. And the uh, documents that, that we have obtained indicated that that was very much happening. For example, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley, he was getting intelligence reports via tweets from CNN's Jake Tapper and Manu Raju and Phil Mattingly, uh, among others. And in the very, very early moments of the attack on the Capitol, it was indeed incredibly chaotic, Mimi. And that did not, uh, it was not, uh, for the Department of Defense, they were not immune from that. Uh, they too were experiencing sort of that informational chaos and trying to understand from wherever they could what the heck was going on. So what other sources of information were they relying on besides those media reports? So they were getting uh, updates and we could see almost a minute-by-minute TikTok of what they were learning as they were learning it. It was coming from other agencies such as the Department of Homeland Security, from the Secret Service, other government agencies, in addition to media reports and people from the Department of Defense that uh, they had on the ground. So uh, in essence, they were trying to just find out uh, literally what was happening, how it was happening, who was there, where there were weapons. And it was very intriguing to see too that they were trying to debunk certain rumors uh, in real time. There was a rumor that a plane was going to be flown into the US Capitol. Uh, there were other rumors too of the Proud Boys, the militia organization attempting to uh, disassemble or, or poison the water in Washington, D.C. Of course, these turned out not to be true, but in the fog of the moment, uh, that was some of the information that was coming over the transom and that they were having to respond to and try to understand if, in fact, those threats were real or, or just bunk. And so after the Capitol had been breached and shots fired, what was the reaction and response from the Pentagon? Well, we now know from the January 6th hearings that uh, occurred earlier this week on Thursday that uh, that the Department of Defense and uh, members of the military, including uh, General Milley, were surprised, even shocked, that Donald Trump had not personally reached out to them. They were trying to understand what role they needed to play, whether the National Guard was going to be uh, involved, which ultimately they were, but there was, of course, quite a delay. So trying to figure out how they needed to react, 
how they needed to respond and deal with what was uh, clearly by that point, uh, the mid-afternoon of January 6th, uh, an unbelievably uh, dangerous and violent situation. So Dave, what other records are you asking for from the DOD and, and what are you expecting to see? So first of all, we expect that we will receive more records as a result uh, of our FOIA lawsuit. Uh, the Department of Defense indicated to us when they gave us the uh, initial responsive records uh, that more would be coming. We have asked for emails, we have asked for documents, memos, basically any communication that was occurring about January 6th from top officials at the Department of Defense. So we won't know what we get until we ultimately get it. That could be weeks, that could be months, but we believe that the public has a right to know what was happening inside the government at that time and that these records are public records indeed. And we wanna be able to report on them and the contents of them to understand truly what was happening in that moment. And briefly, Dave, what would you say was the most surprising thing that you learned from those Pentagon emails? The most surprising thing uh, we, we learned was uh, really that uh, the preparation leading up to January 6th, although mind you, we do not have the full picture, we do not have all the documents, but there, there did seem to just be sort of a, hey, uh, we got this, we can handle this. One of the emails uh, in particular said uh, something to the effect of that uh, the park police uh, for the January 6th event probably can handle this. Of course, it turned out not to be true. All right, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.